Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi is banned from receiving Holy Communion in her home diocese of San Francisco. Archbishop Salvatore Cordelioni is here to tell us why. And will other U.S. bishops follow suit? Bishop Thomas Paprocki of Springfield and Bishop Robert Vasha of Santa Rosa are here to explain how they're receiving the Cordelioni Directive. And Nina Shea joins us with an update on Cardinal Joseph Zen's latest court appearance in China and the new charges he's facing. Catholic League president and sociologist Bill Donahue shares his thoughts on the tragic mass shooting in Texas. Finally, Mark Wahlberg and Mel Gibson talk about Father Stu coming to digital streaming and DVD the world over. Begins right now. Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. We have an important show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover this evening, but first some news. The United States Conference of Catholic Bishops is soliciting input from organizations and individuals, that means you, on the snappily titled Synod on Synodality. If you'd like your voice to be heard, visit usccb.org forward slash synod. Click on individual synod contributions. There you can submit your thoughts and suggestions on the fundamental question of the synod. You can also comment on the 10 themes of that gathering and make suggestions on subjects you think should be covered. Let the bishops know what you think. The deadline is May 31st. Last Friday, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was officially barred from receiving Holy Communion in her home diocese of San Francisco due to her very public stance on and promotion of abortion. Needless to say, that decision by her bishop has generated a firestorm of controversy all over the country. Here now, with his thoughts on the matter, is canon lawyer and the Archbishop of San Francisco, Salvatore Cordelioni. Archbishop, thank you for being here. I want to jump right in. Have you spoken to Speaker Pelosi personally about her longstanding and well-publicized support of abortion? And what moved you to make this decision now? Yes, uh, we have had, I have had conversations with her in the past. Um, but uh, what, uh, and I've been, uh, this has been something I've been grappling with for many years now. Uh, and I was appreciative of the opportunities she did give me to speak with her in the past. But then after uh, Texas passed uh, Senate Bill 8, the so-called heartbeat bill uh, prohibiting abortion after the detection of a fetal heartbeat, that's when she vowed to codify the Roe decision in federal law, essentially granting unfettered access to abortion for all nine months of pregnancy. Uh, so it's a very, it's really an extremist uh, approach. Uh, to, to the question. Uh, so I was very, very concerned, and I've always been concerned about the scandal being caused, and now all the more so. So I sent her a letter at that time and uh, requesting to meet with her and pointing out 
the issues involved. I Then I right after that, I launched the Rose and Rosary for Nancy campaign. The most important thing for us to do is to pray and fast in a situation such as these. And I have a number of times have had asked her uh, for uh, to, to be able to meet to discuss this, and uh, I haven't been able to do that. I sent her a letter in April, w once again, asking uh, to meet, and uh, in that letter, I clearly delineated that she would need to repudiate this position or else uh, refrain from taking communion and referring to herself as a, as a devout Catholic. And she did that once again on May 4th in a public setting. So I once again contacted her office, hoping to be able to meet with her um, because it was a direct violation of what I had asked. Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, I thought I could not then step back at that point. So that's why it happened when it did. Mm -hmm. Archbishop, you know what your critics are saying, uh, what's in much of the media, and they claim you are politicizing communion and politicizing the faith, wading into uh, areas that really don't concern you or the church. Your response would be what? I've been very clear all along that my motivation is pastoral. I, I cited the three principles Pope Francis uh, enunciated in his um, Apostolic Constitution, Pashtit Regim Day, about the revised Book Six of the Code of Canon Law of of trying to uh, address the injustice of the matter to uh, repair scandal and to move the erring Catholic to the point of conversion. This is what has been motivating me mm. all along. That's why I ask people around mm. the country to pray and fast for her. But the other thing is, they don't say this about other issues where faith leaders were prominent leaders, such as the civil rights movement in the 1950s. Were they politicizing civil rights? Should they have just minded their own business and stay in church? We don't think about this, mm. or the abolitionists of the mid-19th century. We don't apply that thinking to other issues. So what I really detect here is a failure to recognize just how evil this issue is. You wrote in your letter, a Catholic legislator, and this went to Pelosi prior to your uh, public announcement of it, a Catholic legislator who supports procured abortion after knowing the teachings of the church commits a manifestly grave sin, which is a cause of most serious scandal to others. Therefore, universal church law provides that such per persons are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. You are not to present yourself for Holy Communion, and should you do so, you are not to be admitted to Holy Communion until such time as you publicly repudiate your advocacy for the legitimacy of abortion and confess and receive absolution of this grave sin in the sacrament of penance. Have you received any response from Nancy Pelosi, or is the fact that she presented herself to Communion in Washington, D.C., after your commentary, is that her response? I have not seen a response, and I don't know to the second question. I don't interpret it as a response. I would like to underscore how unpleasant this is for me. This is not something that I wanted to do, and I knew people were going to uh, berate me for doing this and would not believe me when I say I'm not politically motivated. I'm, I'm interested in advocating for justice and for her own spiritual good. That's my primary motivation. Uh, so it's, mm -hmm. it's something that's unpleasant. I'm certainly not, not relishing doing this, but I was following the advice yeah. that uh, then Cardinal Ratzinger gave the U.S. bishops in 2004 about having these conversations, try to help the, the politician understand. He mentioned specifically the issues of a 
abortion and euthanasia. And if that yeah. proves uh, fruitless, then the, the pastor, he uses the word pastor, meaning pastor of souls, is to declare that they're not to be admitted to Holy Communion. So I, I followed the guidance. You know, I that we bishops were given I, in these matters. I remember years and years ago, back in 2004, 2005, having a conversation with then Cardinal Ratzinger about this, and he saw this as an act of mercy to alert these public officials that their souls were imperiled because of their public pronouncements or public advocacy. Now, in an interview with MSNBC's Morning Joe, Speaker Pelosi was asked about being barred from communion, and she dropped this. Please listen. I wonder about death penalty, which I am opposed to. Mm. So is the church, but they take no action against people who may not share their view. So we just have to be prayerful. We have to be respectful. I come from a largely pro-life Italian-American Catholic family, so I, I respect people's views about, uh, about that, but I don't respect us foisting it on to others. Now, our Archbishop has been vehemently against LGBTQ rights, too. In fact, he led the way in some of the initiatives on an initiative on the ballot in California. So this decision taking us to privacy and precedent is very dangerous in the lives of the, so many of the American people. Archbishop, your reaction to that, that uh, taking us, I, I don't quite understand the, the, the construction here, but uh, that you're taking us from privacy and precedent is dangerous to the American people. First of all, do you know what she means there and your reaction? What I interpret her to mean is that this principle can be applied to other issues. Uh, what perplexes me is that uh, I'm often, I mean, she's not unique, I'm often accused of being ultra-conservative. And it's really because of these two issues of the life issue, life in the womb, and the conjugal meaning of marriage. These are two issues with which she and so many others of her generation have agreed with me on. Back when she was a young lady and the people who were of her generation were young, and no, nobody had a concept that marriage could be other than a man and a woman. The controversy was interracial marriage, uh, but not that you needed a man and a woman to make a marriage. Uh, a, aggressive abortion agenda was not within the consciousness of people. So many people who were young then and are older now have changed their positions on these issues. But they used to agree with, I have not changed my positions with something we used to agree on. Uh, I don't see any reason to change. In fact, the more time goes on, the more we know from science, the more it, it supports uh, retaining this position. So it's, it's really these two issues where I, I'm branded this way. Now she brings up the death penalty, and this is yeah, an issue with you. which we agree, and uh, with all other bishops. But death penalty has a whole other set of considerations. Uh, death penalty is, it's a flawed, I'm convinced that it's a, a flawed uh, uh, process. But theoretically, it's not killing an innocent human life, uh, which abortion does. Of course, that's part of the flaw, because if there's a mistake, there's no way to repair the damage that's been done. So it's, uh, it's, not, this, it's not the same thing, as, as a, because it's not an intrinsic evil in the sense of taking an innocent human life. It is flawed in other ways, and I agree with her. We should abolish it. Uh, but it's each each issue, you know, has its own unique set of well, considerations. Why, uh, but Archbishop, her the, Nancy Pelosi's point here is why not ban those who support the death penalty publicly from communion? And you would say what to that? The death penalty is not what we call in moral theology an intrinsic evil. Um, it's uh, because, again, as I said. 
theoretically it's it's punishing someone who is guilty of a of a very serious crime. Mm -hmm. uh, the church has uh, allowed it in the past. Uh, it's so it's not it's not something that is uh, a part of the church's magisterial teaching as would be the taking of innocent human life in the examples of abortion and euthanasia. It's nonetheless a serious mm -hmm. life matter. It's something we need to be yeah. dedicated to. And it just shows yeah. that a measure like this has to be very rare and only in the, the most uh, egregious types of situations. Mm -hmm. So it's not something we can sort of apply to whatever issue we particularly feel passionate about. Yeah, and, and it's, it's really not proportional either, given the number of abortions and the number of people who die these are the capital punishment, particularly today where it's outlawed in many states. It's a, you know, it's a minuscule number of people we're talking about. Yes, uh, n nonetheless, uh, lives are being lost to it. Um, but if you look mm -hmm. at it surely, uh, surely from a numbers perspective, that's true. But you know, we, I don't yeah. think it can be limited to that. Sure. On ABC's The View this Monday, armchair theologian and sometime nun, uh, Whoopi Goldberg of Avila, had this to say about your decision to bar Nancy Pelosi from communion. Listen. The Archbishop of San Francisco is calling for Speaker Nancy Pelosi to be denied receiving communion because of her pro-choice stance. He's one of the priests who also called for President Biden to be denied sacrament. This is not your job, dude. <laughs> that is not, you can't, that is not up to you to make that decision. You know, what is the saying? It's kind of amazing. Uh, but, you know, what is the point of communion, right? It's for uh, sinners. It's the, for, the, for sinners. It's the reward of saints, but the bread of sinners. How dare you? So, Archbishop, is it your job, and what do you make of her communion argument? <laughs> well, I wonder where she studied her theology, for one thing. <laughs> um, and yes, it is my job. I'm, I'm the faith leader here in my local church, and I have to make decisions, sometimes very hard and unpleasant decisions, to provide for the pastoral care of my people and help people understand God's truth, the beauty of God's truth, and, and to grow in holiness. As Cardinal Rotzinger said, it's, it is an act of mercy. Uh, so, um, I, yes, it is, it is my business. Yeah. What do you make of this communion argument? I hear this a lot, that, uh, you know, uh, and they quote Pope Francis, that, you know, this is not the reward for sanctity, but the, the bread of sinners, uh, communion, and therefore it should be open to all. You would say what? Sometimes Pope Francis says things that you can interpret one way or the other. He did not say it should be open to all. Uh, so uh, anything, any any pronouncement of a pope or even, even official magisterial act, such as an encyclical, it always has to be interpreted within the whole magisterial tradition of what has come before seen within that context. So, uh, mm -hmm. yes, it's true that none of us is worthy to receive. We are all flawed. We are all sinners. And so we have to see it that way. It's not, it's not a badge of honor or, or something that makes us superior to others. So he, he's correct there. Mm -hmm. But the church has al always understood that one must be properly disposed, what we traditionally say in a state of grace, in order to receive Holy Communion. Pope Francis certainly did mm -hmm. not say anything to deny that basic teaching of the church. But it is a healthy mm -hmm. reminder that at, at the heart of it, in, a, in this other sense, we are all unworthy, but the grace of Christ can make us worthy if we cooperate with that grace and trying to live a virtuous mm -hmm. life and availing ourselves of the sacraments, especially the sacrament of penance. Archbishop, you have certainly um, 
kicked the wasp's nest on all of this. The editorial board of the San Francisco Examiner is demanding that Pope Francis remove you, calling you a radical. Meanwhile, at the same time, you've received a lot of support, more than a dozen bishops now. Uh, what are you hearing from your brother bishops? And might we expect other heads of dioceses to take similar actions regarding Catholic politicians departing from church teaching on these grave issues and therefore, because of the public nature of it, causing scandal. I'm very grateful to my brother bishops who have issued public statements in, in support of me. Uh, many others have contacted me personally with phone calls and, and emails uh, to express their support. So I, I do feel a lot of comfort and support for my brother bishops uh, with this decision, as unpleasant as I said, as it is. Uh, but uh, I finally came to the point, I'm, I'm grateful to God that he brought me to the point to where I was absolutely certain in my conscience that I had to do it because, like I said earlier, I've been struggling with this for years. I wanted to do everything possible to avoid having to do this. Mm -hmm. But I became absolutely certain that I had to do it, which means no matter what happens, it's it is, is of secondary importance because what what is important is that I can be at peace in my conscience that I've done the right thing, regardless of what other people think, regardless of what happens to me. Archbishop, we're going to talk to two as, of your brother bishops as, as in just as, moments. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. What do I was you going to say? say, as far as other bishops taking this action, I think that would be, uh, we'll see what happens with the Dobbs decision if the court returns the issue to the states. There may be bishops in some states that will have to do that, depending on how th these laws are are, are mm -hmm. passed in, in the different state legislatures. So I well, think we're, it's, we're going to be in a different, a completely different political landscape after that Dobbs decision, if it yeah. goes the way it seems that it will. Well, we're going to talk to some of your brother bishops in moments, but um, some of them have quoted Canon 1379 to me, which is a new canon, and it obligates pastors to a certain course. It reads, a person who deliberately administers a sacrament to those who are prohibited from receiving it is to be punished with suspension, to which other penalties mentioned in Canon 1336 may be added. Now, um, Archbishop, you're a canonist. What does that canon mean, particularly to those in other dioceses? Uh, might they be on the canonical hook, if you will, for not abiding by your decision here vis-a-vis uh, -vis one, one of your flock, whom you are in contact with and know well? Yes, this canon is in what I mentioned earlier, the revised book six of the Code of Canon Law that treats uh, penal sanctions. The canon is very carefully worded. It is not an automatic penalty, what we call latte sententia, where the penalty is incurred by the very act itself. So one does not in mm. automatically incur a suspension for doing this. Rather, it calls upon the bishop to impose a suspension. So it allows some discretionary latitude for the bishop. So uh, a bishop in a diocese who has pronounced that this uh, will be observed in his diocese, even in that case, mm -hmm. he may decide not to impose a suspension if someone gives their commute, depending on the circumstances. If someone is afraid or intimidated mm -hmm. or not sure or something like that, 
versus someone who's being mm -hmm. openly defiant. So those are two kind of different situations. So it does yeah. allow the bishop some uh, degree of uh, some latitude for discretion. It also leaves bish bishops have to decide for their own diocese. Bishops uh, have the pastoral governance of their diocese, and they a bishop in his own diocese can decide if this is if he's going to order that this uh, be observed or no. he remain silent, or or he can decide for himself in his diocese what to do about it. Archbishop, I want to return to that question of other bishops in just one second, and I know we're tight on time. During the Sunday Angelus this past weekend, Pope Francis called attention to pro-life pilgrims, and frankly, I was thinking of your situation and the decision you've made when I heard this live. He said, sadly, there has been a change in the common mentality, and we are more led to think that life is a good at our complete disposal that we can choose to give birth or to take a life as we please, as if it were the exclusive consequence of individual choice. Let us remember that life is a gift from God. It is always sacred and invaluable, and we cannot silence the voice of conscience. What did you think when you heard that? Hey, Pope Francis is true to form. He's been a very vocal advocate for life in every stage and condition, including life in the womb. There are some people who would like to portray him as sort of downplaying the seriousness of this issue, but he has never done that. It's part of what he refers to as the throwaway culture, right? This is very much mm -hmm. along the line of his thinking, what he says here about this throwaway culture, where we, we demean and dispose of human life that might seem inconvenient to us. So uh, he's perfectly consistent in his teaching here. Finally, Cardinal Wilton Gregory's office uh, in Washington, D.C., accidentally sent a journalist an email saying they plan to ignore all inquiries about your directive. Um, they, they basically said, you know, we're going to ignore this like the others. I would also mention that the Archbishop of Arlington, or Bishop, rather, of Arlington, Virginia, Michael Burbage, which is right next door to the Archdiocese of Washington, announced that the ban will apply to Nancy Pelosi in his diocese. Do you think bishops should abide by the decisions of local ordinaries, particularly where these national political figures are concerned? And what is the cost of bishops' disunity on this question? Uh, this is a very uh, delicate matter. Um, every bishop has to follow his own conscience in this matter. And it's possible for bishops to come to different conclusions, uh, both with having a well-formed conscience. So. I think we just simply need to respect each other's decision and, uh, and uh, discernment for the circumstances of each one in his local church. Uh, I don't know what, what long-term consequences there, there will be, but the principle is mm -hmm. that the bishop has the pastoral governance of his diocese. He has to decide for what he honestly and sincerely thinks is best for his local church. We may come to uh, different decisions about that. Okay. Archbishop Salvatore Cordelioni, I thank you for being here, and uh, we will check in with you as this situation, no doubt, continues to evolve. Thank you. I want to go now to Bishop Thomas Paprocki of Springfield, Illinois, and the aforementioned Bishop Robert Vasha of Santa Rosa, two U.S. bishops 
who are in support of Archbishop Cordelione's decision to bar Speaker Pelosi from Holy Communion. Your Excellencies, thank you for joining me. Uh, Bishop Vasha, I want to start with you. In response to the Archbishop's actions, you said you, too, will prohibit Pelosi from Holy Communion. She has a vacation home in Napa, which falls within the borders of your diocese, and she sometimes attends St. Helena Catholic Church in your diocese. Why did you decide to abide by Archbishop Cordelion's decision? Archbishop Cordelion and I have been in conversation over the last several months, and he did give me a heads up that this was a planned action and that he was awaiting a response from Ms. Pelosi. And so when he issued the prohibition, I simply made it clear to him that I would support that and that, in my view, as as a canonist, the prohibition is personal to her, and it would be an act of disrespect on my part to the archbishop to simply say, I will not observe this prohibition in my diocese. I have tremendous respect for the archbishop, think that he did the right and correct thing in this matter, and it would be disingenuous for me to simply say I'm going to ignore the prohibition because I think it is necessary, and I've received, as has the archbishop, any number of positive emails and notes and letters from people thanking me for making the statement that I would observe this prohibition. Mm -hmm. Bishop Paprocki, you have taken similar measures to those of Archbishop Cordelion, barring pro-choice Catholic Senator Dick Durbin from receiving communion in your diocese. During a press conference on Wednesday, Senator Durbin had this to say regarding the Cordelione decision. Listen. I still believe that the uh, authorities in the church believe that we have uh, issues that have to, can only be decided by our own conscience uh, and not by some bishop's conscience. Bishop Paprocki, how would you answer that? Well, I'd say he has a uh, mistaken understanding of conscience. Uh, conscience. The word conscience comes from two words, con, which in Latin means cum, which is with, and uh, science is to think. So it's who are you thinking with? And so the, the bishops have an obligation to uh, teach what the, the Catholic faith uh, teaches and asks that the Catholic uh, faithful abide by that. And so if uh, Dick Durbin, uh, Senator Durbin, wants to follow somebody else, well, then he's following his conscience, but he's not thinking with the church. And so to follow your conscience is to say, who are you thinking with? Are you thinking with Hollywood? Are you thinking with the secular culture? Or are you thinking with the Catholic Church? And if you want to think with the Catholic Church, then you can't be pro-abortion. Mm. Uh, Bishop Basha, some argue that uh, this decision by Archbishop Cordelion pits bishops against one another and weakens the church. Why is consistency and respect for an ordinary's decision important? And is a national standard necessary here? I, I don't know that a national standard is, is necessary. I think the bishops are unanimous in recognizing, I'm sure they are, that abortion is a terrible crime and that those who support it are endangering their souls. There is a difference of opinion about how best to approach those individuals and how best to seek their conversion, but there is a point at which endless dialogue is simply doing nothing. And so after significant dialogue, as Archbishop has had with Ms. Pelosi, after significant dialogue, then the consequences need to be applied. And in this case, it was clear that she was warned and said and told, if you do not recant or at least 
maintain a respectful silence on this issue, you cannot at the same time claim to be fully faithful Catholic and pro-abortion. You simply cannot. Bishop Propraki, the same uh, uh, charges and, and media coverage that we're seeing now thrown at Archbishop Cordelioni, that was applied to you when you first, uh, you know, issued your warning to uh, Senator Durbin. Uh, it, th there is this notion that somehow you're wading into politics or you're trying to use the church to create a political outcome. Why is that thinking flawed and the focus of it? Well, it's flawed because I believe that I and Archbishop Cordelioni and all the other bishops, we would be taking uh, the same position regardless of uh, the pro-abortion politicians' uh, party. You know, there are uh, pro-Republican, there are pro-abortion Republicans. That's my understanding that uh, Senator uh, Collins of Maine, who's Catholic, and Senator Murkowski of uh, Alaska, they have uh, proposed some legislation that would somehow try to codify Roe versus Wade. Uh, they're Republicans. Uh, so I, I think that the question is not a political one. It's a question of the bishops uh, trying to uh, advocate what the church teaches in terms of respect for all human life from conception to natural death. I'm going to ask you what I asked um, Bishop Vasha a moment ago. Is a national policy needed, or at least the bishops agreeing that they will abide by um, no matter where that individual travels, particularly a national political figure, that they will abide by the decisions of an ordinary? Well, in a sense, we already have a national policy. We have the Code of Canon Law, which is, is international. That, that governs the, uh, the entire universal church. And Canon 915 is what's at issue here. And uh, just last year, our United States Conference of Catholic Bishops issued a document on Eucharistic coherence. The teaching is clear. Mm -hmm. The question is, how is it applied? And in that regard, uh, it's not up to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops uh, to enforce uh, these teachings. Uh, the, the USCCB is not a governing body. That, uh, that pertains to each uh, local bishop. And so a bishop has mm -hmm. to make that determination in his own diocese. But I would, uh, I would underscore what Bishop Vasha said earlier, that I, I think it's important for us bishops uh, to respect the decisions made of our brother bishops, because after all, uh, Archbishop Cordelioni is Speaker Pelosi's uh, our bishop, and uh, he's the one that's been in conversation with her, or has attempted to have conversation with her. And if he says, as as her pastor, that she is not to receive Holy Communion, then I, I think, as a brother bishop, I, I should respect that, and I will hope that all of our brother uh, bishops would respect mm -hmm. that as well. Bishop Thomas Paprocki, Bishop Robert Vasha, thank you both for being here. You're welcome. Thank you, Ray. You're welcome. On Tuesday, the former bishop of Hong Kong, Joseph Cardinal Zen, appeared in a Hong Kong court and faced new charges. Joining me with an update on his situation is director of the Center for Religious Freedom at the Hudson Institute, Nina Shea. Nina, Cardinal Zen was originally arrested for conspiracy to collude with foreign forces, a charge that under that sweeping national security law carries a life sentence. But now he and four other former trustees of this nonprofit relief fund, when they appeared in court on Tuesday, were charged with failing to register the fund with police as, quote, a society. Apparently, that offense can incur a fine of up to 1200 U.S. dollars for the first conviction. Cardinal Zen pled not guilty. What do you make of the additional charge here? Uh, well, Raymond, um, it's 
not a change, it's an addition. So there are two charges against the Cardinal and he will face the more serious uh, national security uh, law charge later this year. Uh, so he will go back to court for the fine um, back in, in September. There's going to be a trial on that one. And, the, and then there'll be the, uh, the maybe a life sentence coming for the other charge later. Um, it's The whole thing is um, concocted. It's a threat to the Catholic Church at large, to Christians at large in China and Hong Kong, especially in Hong Kong. It signals his arrest signals the end of religious freedom in Hong Kong, which has been largely mm. uh, free for the churches until now. And it, it yeah. signals that no one will be exempt, not even a 90-year-old emeritus uh, bishop will be exempt from conformity to the CPC, to, to um, the, the Chinese Communist Party, to, to uh, submit to their rule. And, you know, no. he has been an internationally known dissident um, on the world stage, perhaps the most well-known still in China and still dissenting, which he's still doing. Yeah. And he was the one giving prayers uh, for the church in China on May 24, the Feast of Mary, Help of Christians. The others in his own diocese were not. The other churches were too afraid to do this. They're too afraid yeah. now to even have their commemoration in June for the Tiananmen Square Massacre, as they've done every year mm. since 89. Um, they are intimidated. Um, they're afraid of losing everything. And um, they don't want to speak out. The Cardinal will face a full trial on September 19th. But as you referenced, following his court appearance, Cardinal Zen offered a mass for his, quote, brothers and sisters who cannot attend the mass in any form tonight, for they have no freedom now, end quote. Now, that coincided with, as you mentioned, the World Day of Prayer for the Church in China. Zen was critical of that Vatican-China deal and uh, told the gathering of about 300 people in a small neighborhood church, quote, there is an urge to unify those above the ground and those underground, but it seems that time is not ripe yet. The Vatican may have acted out of good faith, but they have made an unwise decision. How do you think those words resonate for the people of Hong Kong, as well as those in the Vatican? Well, I think that it inspires them in Hong Kong that he has not lost his courage, that he stands for principle. He has not lost his moral compass. Um, the, the Vatican um, was afraid to mention his name. Uh, they did not. Um, the Pope prayed for China, Christians in China on right. that day as well, but did not mention Cardinal Zen's name. They're not offering any legal help to him, uh, or they're not giving any legal help. And uh, so I think that they want to, they're preoccupied with this agreement of renewing it. That's what the Vatican has said. Cardinal Parolin, um has said that he wants to uh, help. It doesn't interfere with that, this arrest. And he doesn't want it to um, discourage or disavow the dialogue either. Um, he, he, he thinks right. the dialogue with this diabolical regime is is the most important thing. And it's not clear to me what they have gotten out of it. I know they've lost some moral, um, uh, you know, some moral currency, actually, for, for not speaking yeah. out for all the bishops and priests and, and others in political prisoners in China today. You know, Cardinal Zen is the only Catholic cardinal in the world today facing a political trial. 
and they're not saying anything. They're self-censoring their own prayers in Hong Kong now. So it's, um, I think their priorities are wrong. I don't think they're getting anything out of the deal. Others have been very critical. Right. Cardinal Zen thinks it, it's a terrible deal because it will kill the underground. Yeah, well, he said martyrdom is part of, of the church. And, uh, it, you know, it, it seems things are headed in that direction. Uh, you know, certainly I encourage everybody, and I know they have been praying for Cardinal Zen and all of the faithful in China who are undergoing such terrible persecution, uh, death, uh, uh, and conscription uh, in their everyday lives. Finally, on, on Tuesday, Nina, thousands of leaked photographs and documents shedding light on the human toll of the CCP treatment of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang were uh, published by the BBC and other media outlets. Now, this happened just as the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights visits cities in the region. The photos and the documents date back to 2018, and they include thousands of mugshots, including children as young as 14, and detail a shoot-to-kill policy for people who try to escape. Um, the CCP is accused of detaining more than a million Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities, putting them through re-education programs, forced labor, coerced sterilization, a genocide, according to the United States and other Western countries. Now that we've seen these photos and the documents, what should the U.S. response be? And you heard from Anthony Blinken this week saying, we incur, you know, we're going to walk side by side with China and continue to compete and let it be part of the world community. Yes. Well, uh, those photographs uh, were extremely moving. I was on a call with some Uyghur um, activists looking at them. They were in tears. They recognized their relatives, their, a grandmother, a, oh, a cousin gosh. in those pictures. And um, we know now, you know, it, it's completely uh, confirmed that these are not vocational training camps, as the Chinese uh, Communist Party have maintained. Right. Um, that these are concentration camps. There are photos of police uh, handcuffing them, locking them up, uh, guarding them, surveilling them. Those people should be identified and sanctioned. The top leaders of, of those camps and that region should be identified and sanctioned um, by the United States government. Um, we certainly should be uh, pulling back our investments and trade in that uh, country because um, it's being used by a regime that's fundamentally evil. Mm. On Tuesday, China's ambassador to the U.K. tweeted, quote, such a shame for BBC to carry the fabricated story about so-called detention camps, pathetic for the media in cahoots with the notorious rumor monger to once again spread disinformation about Xinjiang. Does the CCP think it can spin this story this way, Nina? Well, it wants to control the narrative that around the world, not just in China. Of course, they they, they mm -hmm. go to the trouble of uh, apprehending Uyghurs, uh, Uyghur Muslims who are dissidents in the West and around the world and bringing them back to China, China to punish them. Um, there were five um, Chinese uh, agents of the CCP here in the United States just this month indicted for uh, spying and harassing American citizens uh, who were of Chinese extraction. So um, they go to great lengths to hide this, to control the narrative, and their, their ambassadors are called wolf warriors because they go out with the most preposterous, come out with the most preposterous statements, like um, they wanted to forcibly sterilize and abort um, uh, babies from 
from uh, women in in the camps because in the Uyghur camps uh, as a way of liberating women. That's what the ambassador in Washington tweeted out. The Chinese ambassador. Wow. Um, it was so atrocious that even Twitter uh, cut him off. They canceled him on Twitter. So um, mm -hmm. it's it's uh, it's absurd, but it's uh, it's horrifying. Nina, we will leave it there. Let's hope the Vatican finds its moral voice in the days ahead. This uh, situation and the number of lives swept up in it are just too numerous to continue to remain silent, including heroes like Cardinal Zen, Jimmy Lai, and so many others. Thank you for your time. Nina Shea, we'll check in in the days ahead. Thank you, Raymond. On Wednesday, Pope Francis once again raised a few eyebrows, commenting on welcoming migrants. Speaking off the cuff to members of the International Solidarity Fund, he recalled a conversation he once had with someone from the U.S. who told him that Americans were not immigrants because they were already rooted there. Pope Francis recalled correcting the individual this way, quote, you are a people of migrants, of Irish immigrants and Italian immigrants. The Irish brought you whiskey, and the Italians brought you the mafia. Always look at the roots, end quote. Some are reacting with hostility to those comments. One journalist calling it a series of ethnic slurs. We'll discuss all of this in our next segment. But on to more serious news. On Tuesday, an 18-year-old gunman in Uvalde, Texas, opened fire at an elementary school, killing 19 children and two adults, before being killed by a Border Patrol unit. It was the deadliest school attack since Sandy Hook in Connecticut in 2012. Grief and anger have spread across the U.S., as well as calls for stricter gun control laws in order to prevent future incidents. But what is motivating these individuals to choose to kill? Here to share his thoughts as a sociologist, is president of the Catholic League, Dr. Bill Donahue. Bill, thanks for being here. You've written a piece on these tragic shootings and why you think they will continue if we fail to diagnose what's truly causing them. Now, according to current reports, this shooter shot his own grandmother at home before heading to school or this school to conduct his attack. From a sociological standpoint, what emerges to your eye about this shooter and why do you think he moved to perpetuate this kind of heinous crime and slaughter upon these innocent kids? Well, I looked at uh, what he did and about his bio, and I also looked at what happened in, in Buffalo and a couple of years ago in El Paso and in Dayton. Mm -hmm. And in all these cases, there, there's a common thread here. It's not, it's not a matter of guns, per se. It's not a matter of race. Uh, there's ideologies involved in a couple of cases, the, in Dayton and uh, the left-winger and in, in, in El Paso, the right-winger. But in all these cases, you're talking about kids who are—first of all, they're always young men. They're never old men. They're never women. And they're always guys who are asocial. Some of them are antisocial. When I say they're asocial, they have no friends. They are loners. And they are described by that way almost universally by their peers. They come from dysfunctional mm -hmm. families in almost every case. Uh, they have a fascination uh, with violence. Now, sometimes that's with guns. Sometimes it's with video games uh, and the like. Uh, these are people who, have, who are troubled. They, they typically have mental issues of one sort or another. Uh, and we have a public which is refusing to pay attention to the red flags, about which there are many. Hmm. Bill, the conversation inevitably runs to guns in the wake of one of these school shootings. Will tougher gun laws, you think, solve the problem, stop these school shootings? 
They're not going to stop them there any more than they are in Chicago. Chicago and in my city, New York City, have some of the toughest gun control laws in the United States. I'm not against reasonable gun control, by the way. I'm not an absolutist mm -hmm. on this by any means. But I will say that if Chicago and New York have some of the stringest uh, gun control laws in the country and all they do is kill each other, where, where I'm in New York, it's out of control. And Chicago, every Friday and Saturday night, it's absolute bloodshed. So uh, yeah. th that's not exactly the way to look at it. Look, we need to get, we have to be more proactive in intervening. These guys are, have telltale signs. When, when the guy in, in, uh, uh, in Buffalo, they say it was race motivated. Well, was it race motivated that he found a cat in his garage who was going after his own cat? And then he takes a knife mm. and he stabs the cat. And then he smashes the, hat, the cat's head onto the concrete. Then he takes a hatchet and cuts off his head. This has nothing to do with race whatsoever. The media are race-soaked, the race-folked race, race -folked and soaked uh, in this country on this issue. The other guy uh, in, in, uh, in Texas, he takes knives and cuts himself up because it's fun. He goes out and he takes his BB gun and shoots people randomly. Now, these are very yeah. serious guys who, who, who need to be uh, attended to. No gun control is going to stop uh, these men whatsoever, none. Yeah, you're talking about this Uvalde shooter here, and, and, and it's true. He was addicted to Call, call of Duty. Uh, he had slashed himself with knives and came to school. Here's the question. Why do you think there's such a reluctance to report these individuals when these warning signs emerge? We have policies and laws in this country that are working against that. Uh, here in New York City, for example, you now have a law which says that after somebody tries to kill you, stab you, rob you, whatever it is, the name and the address of the victim is now made public. This is the idea of racial equity and, and the rights of the criminals. And so now the guy is released automatically. Of course, you don't, everybody's released in New York. Nobody gets, he gets held for anything. And now the guy can come after you. He knows who you are and come after you. And the workplace, I've looked at uh, some of the people or the experts who study what's going on in the workplace. Just take the issue of sexual harassment, for example. People are afraid to report because they're afraid that there'll be reprisals against them by their boss. Why did you get so involved? Mm -hmm. In other words, people are almost rewarded for not reporting. We need to have guidance counselors and others who have to have a psychological profile of these young men. They do have red flags all over the place, but we're not, we're not doing the right thing. We need to reward people when they come forward. Uh, I wrote yeah. about that in The Truth for, uh, about clergy sexual abuse, that the bishops saw red flags and they didn't act on them. It's true in the schools as well. Mm, yeah, well, look, it, it's charitable to help people who are hurting and people who are suffering from mental illness or are drug addicted. When you see that, you have to say something and intervene. But as you said, there are laws in place and a, and a, a criminal justice system in place to de-incentivize that kind of reportage. So hopefully uh, our, our elected officials will focus on that as well. Finally, Bill, before I run out of time, your reaction to the Pope saying that the Irish brought whiskey to the U.S. and the Italian Italians brought the mafia. Yeah, you know, Francis, like every pope or priest, uh, is open to fair criticism on some of the policies he makes. Uh, I think the whole country needs to loosen up. When we see somebody who makes a comment which could be interpreted as untoward, so to speak, uh, biased, uh, one of the things we look at is his motive. Uh, I'm sure that the pope, he's well up in his years, mid-80s. Uh, I'm sure he meant no harm whatsoever. People should take a deep breath and give him a pass. Give him a pass. Okay. Bill Donahue, thank you for your work, and uh, we will check in with you at thecatholicleague.org. Thank you.
The true story of Stuart Long, the boxer-turned-priest, is a tale of family heartache, suffering, and redemption. His story became a movie, Father Stu, and it tells the amazing story of this self-destructive actor, boxer, and roustabout who turns his life around in an unexpected way. I sat down recently with the stars of the film, Mark Wahlberg, Mel Gibson, and director Rosalind Ross. Father Stu is available on digital streaming starting May 31st and on DVD and Blu-ray June 14th. Here are some highlights of those interviews. I want to start with where you first heard about Father Stu. I'd never heard of this man. I cover this stuff for a living. Mm -hmm. I literally never heard of Father Stuart Long. How did you encounter this story? Okay, I'm at an Italian restaurant in Beverly Hills with two priests, um, and we're just trying to, me and one of the priests are just trying to enjoy our meal and, uh, and a glass of wine, and the other priest is adamant about pitching me this movie idea. And then uh, my wife had heard the pitch and said, oh my God, you gotta do this. And then he told me the pitch again. I said, why do you keep pitching me this movie? You know nothing about movies in Hollywood. And, uh, and, and, uh, and then something just caught my attention about the story. What was it? What was the one thing that you went, I have to do this? This is in what, 2016? Yeah, maybe, yeah, 2016, 2015. It's been about six years in, uh -huh. in, in the making. Um, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I just said start from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then when I started to hear the story, you know, it's like everything happens for a reason. So I've always been kind of thinking about how do I continue to pay forward all the blessings that have been bestowed upon me. I know God didn't put me in this position to kind of forget about where I came from. I've been doing lots of stuff in my own community where I grew up and worked with inner city kids and at-risk youth. But he doesn't give you the, the, the gifts and the talents until it's time to utilize in the right way and for him and not for yourself. Mm -hmm. So I've always been kind of saying, okay, what is my mission? What is my purpose? Mm -hmm. And planting this seed, letting it blossom, and then utilizing that to, to, to continue to spread his word. You financed this movie yourself as well. This was not easy to make. It's not like the studios were yapping to get the Father Stu story. Uh, yes, I broke the, the cardinal rule. You never put your own money into a film. <laughs> right. But um, I didn't even really go out to a lot of people. I didn't send it to any major studios. I had a couple of friends who I had made kind of small, independent uh, movies with or people that I made a couple of true stories with, and they didn't even really respond to it. Mm. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to do it on my own. And it's an amazing story of suffering, um, accidents, uh, hardships that he can't fathom or understand or make sense of, which I think everybody feels at some point or another. Well, yeah, but then he ultimately embraced those things, mm -hmm. and that's what, that's what, God, it gives me so much hope and so much understanding, because, you know, death is inevitable, you know, sickness, mm -hmm. all of those things are inevitable, we're going to face those, but how you, how you face those things, and how Stu was able to embrace those things, mm -hmm. and as his phys physicality started to deteriorate, his spirituality just soared. And people recognize that, and they recognize the truth in that. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like smoke and mirrors, like, mm -hmm. oh no, this is a. Um, he was glad that this happened to him. It allowed him to get closer to God through his suffering, yeah. and it gave him the ability to share that with other people in a very honest way that was very relatable. Mark, you've been all over the country with this movie. I mean, screening after screening. What's been the reaction to those who are faith-based as well as folks who perhaps aren't? Uh, just how moved they are by the movie, the story, how inspired they are, how much hope they're finding in the story. It's, uh, it's amazing to see people laughing and crying and in the midst of tears, then more laughter erupts. Yeah. 
you know, I haven't been in the theater for a long time and for the first oh. time in, you know, over two years to see it with a full audience and see the reaction was uh, incredible. It made all, all the risk worth it for sure. Rose, you wrote, you directed this movie. Um, you're not Catholic, but I have to tell you, this may be one of the most Catholic contemporary movies anybody's likely to see. How did you find that, um, that understanding of suffering and how at times the pain and the suffering in life can lead you to your ultimate destination, to, to, to what God intends for you? Father Stu was a living embodiment of, of grace and strength and suffering. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you hear it from anybody whose life he touched. Um, that he was incredibly grateful for what afflicted him and mm. um, and had such sort of dignity and, and strength in it. His life is such a beautiful example of humility, you know, of, of you've got this guy who was a who was a fighter who fought everybody, you know, an opponent in a ring, a guy in a bar. He fought the hand that was dealt to him in life, he fought for his father's approval, and it wasn't until he found God that he realized he could surrender a bit, you know? Mm. And, um, and I think he learned that staying in the fight on your feet isn't always as effective as getting on your knees and admitting that you can't do it wow. alone. But Mel, tell me about working on this role. Um, Bill is part of, really, it, it's, it's his story as well. This broken man leaves his family, his son he wants nothing to do with, and then they rediscover each other and he finds his role. What drew you to that, to the role as Rosie wrote it? You know, I mean, I've, I've got seven sons, right? Mm. And you don't do a perfect job with everybody. Mm. And, uh, you know, I've had to do that makeup stuff where you go by. And you go back and, and, and do another flyby and try and, you know, write things that maybe weren't perfect and talk about stuff. And uh, those are the most fulfilling uh, things for me, uh, I think, uh, because we've all made mistakes. And I think Bill is probably in that boat, too. I, I know I talked to him on the phone, and just a few little things he said kind of told me who he was. He's not somebody who's terribly demonstrative, but he's, he's very deep in his feelings. Here. There's a piece of the tale that is left out here where after Stu becomes a priest, he continues his ministry, his family not only reunites, they convert to the Catholic faith. Oh, yeah. yeah, they were both baptized at the same time. His parents were baptized by uh, Archbishop Thomas, and Stu was literally on a gurney, uh, you know, with tears streaming down his face, assisted living at oxygen at the time. And that was, yeah, that was his, uh, I think he was crowning achievement. Yeah, the, the fulfillment of his, his mission. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Did you write Bill with Mel in mind? I did, yes. Wow. <laughs> he had no choice but to play the role, right? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the touch of God that only comes through pain and suffering. This is not something people necessarily want to deal with. It's not something even religion avoids many times. Why did you decide that you wanted to take this head on? Is that what appealed to you about his story? I think, you know, I've been, I've been uh, really focused on my faith uh, for quite some time. And, you know, I had a very troubled past. It was my faith that allowed me to turn my life around and get, you know, back on, on the right road. Uh -huh. And so I was always thinking about how could I give back and do more, utilize what's been given to me uh -huh. for the greater purpose and what God really gave it to me for. And, you know, I, I always really admired what Mel did with the passion. 
and that love letter that he created to the Lord. And I was like, wow, that, that certainly inspired me. And I always figured out, okay, there was, there was going to be a point where I was going to have to focus a lot more on me doing God's work and focusing less on trying to build up me as the kind of actor producer or oh. my entrepreneurial endeavors, what I was doing. And so this thing just kind of came to me, you know, it was the same oh. thing about getting involved in church more uh, and being a participant as opposed to being a spectator, oh. starting even little things like doing the collection and then oh. hosting the Festival of Families. And like, these are things that I always felt uncomfortable being a part of, but oh. I knew I should be doing more. Oh. And so now this is just, a, again, Stu kind of took me and utilized me to continue to, you know, so, amplify his voice and message. So it, it's a personal walk of faith oh, in many day, ways absolutely. for you. And this is, this is literally, this is the starting point to now me doing a lot more uh -huh. so uh yeah and you don't put it out there and then just say oh well i'll, I'll get to it next time or, i got these other three movies i don't want to do then i'll do it i mean i'm, I'm making i'm putting myself out there uh -huh. i'm making sure that i continue to do well, it well i'll leave it there it is a gift as you said it is a gift to, to i think viewers and certainly me it was uh, extremely moving and i think it touches people in ways they don't expect congratulations yeah. thank you Father Stu, starring Mark Wahlberg and Mel Gibson, is available on digital streaming platforms May 31st and DVD and Blu-ray on June 14th. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thanks for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.